Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Despite high mortgage rates, growing demand has kept both Canadian and U.S. real estate markets competitive through the first half of 2023. After a year of resilience, Asian markets posted losses this week after concerns over China's property sectors remain top of mind. Joining the show today to discuss the current global market landscape and share what themes he is evaluating for the remainder of the year is Steve Buller, Portfolio Manager of the Fidelity Global Real Estate Fund. Steve tells host Pamela Ritchie about the impact he has seen China's property sector have on the global real estate market, focusing specially on the indirect correlations through GDP growth. He explains that while there's no direct contagion, a prolonged downward trend in Chinese property could indirectly impact global GDP and, subsequently, the demand for commercial real estate. Elaborating on commercial real estate, Steve discusses the evolving dynamics of the office space, considering factors like remote work, hybrid models, and the competition posed by co-working spaces. On a related note, he also touches on alternative real estate segments such as data centers, which are seeing an increased demand due to digitization and AI. Steve also talks us through the effect of rising interest rates on real estate segments, the role of balance sheets, and the potential value of education centers within cities. Throughout the discussion, Steve emphasizes that the fundamentals of real estate, including demand and supply dynamics, remain strong despite challenges and interest rate fluctuations. This podcast was recorded on August 18th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Let's start with China, if you don't mind, because there's an awful lot of headlines all over the place. Evergrande was almost a story last year. There's a U.S. sort of bankruptcy filing going on. I guess that's a bit of an update. The bigger story appears to be Country Garden, which is a property company in China where we've seen some losses go into their financial system. I guess the question for you really is, there, is there contagion to the rest of the global real estate market? There's no direct contagion. Now, obviously, if we continue to have this downward trend in Chinese property, and by some estimates, it's almost up to one third of Chinese GDP, it could impact global GDP. Now, there's a high correlation for demand for all forms of commercial real estate with GDP growth. So it's more of an indirect correlation than direct. So it doesn't sort of have that that feel to it. In some ways, the commercial real estate story gets a, a, well, is hijacked the right word? We seem to think of it as synonymous with office quite often. It's not, Mm -hmm. but that does seem to be where the headlines go. In some areas of office globally, is it so bad that it's actually good at this stage? The fund currently is underweight office, especially within North America and in London, where we do see kind of the remote work, hybrid work, too much supply, really impact the office fundamentals. And this is going to take a long time to play out because one, office leases are very long in duration. So when they come up, all other things being equal, we're we're constantly seeing tenants downsize their office demand anywhere between 10 and 15%. And secondly, is it really wasn't a good business, especially in North America, prior to the pandemic. I think some people forget about that. 
but there wasn't great returns being had. So you, you layer in what has occurred in the pandemic and the new remote work, it's turned into a pretty dire type situation, but it will play out over time. Is, is what's competing in there, the, the sort of the companies that offer flexi space or, you know, whatever you want to call that co-working space, is that is that a competitor for the 10 year long office lease? It is a competitor, but it also is a demand driver because many of the co-working, and by some estimates, there's five to 6,000 co- or flex-working operators out there globally. I mean, the kind of the emergence of WeWork a couple of years and now the saga, which still continues of WeWork, it got a lot more publicity than it actually was warranted. It's actually been around for a long time, and we actually think it will continue to be around. You have the very simple example, which is going on. You know, XYZ company in the past would probably traditionally lease maybe 100,000 square feet on a 10-year lease. But within that 10-year time period, their actual office demand could go up or down with how their business is going or how their employment growth or decline is going. Now we're seeing quite often that this hypothetical company, XYZ, may be leasing only 80,000 square feet with the same amount of employees, but they'll flex the rest. So they have some optionality when their needs go up or down. Okay, that's that's really the real change. So outside of that, can we go a little bit across the commercial space, and and then we'll we'll talk a bit about the global markets and where you have overweights and underweights. But I'm I'm sort of curious what else works within commercial. It's a, it's a large field, obviously. It is a very large field. What we're seeing is some of the more which is termed alternative space has done better. Um, the fund does have an overweight, for example, in data centers. And even prior to the AI phenomena, which you know has kind of been six to 12 months in growing, the demand for data centers had been increasing. Everything that's digitalized, whether it's in your professional or personal life, is either stored or runs through a data center. And then more recently, you, you layer in AI. And guess what? AI happens in the data center. I think some people forget about that. These high-powered chips, they in, create an incredible amount of heat. And they need to be cooled. So you have demand for power and water that is essential in keeping these chips cooled. And that's what a data center really does. It cools down all the computing that's going on inside. Well, I was just going to say, does the data center rent the land that it's doing this on from the companies or, or do they own? How does that work? Well, the, it, it varies. But the AI providers, primarily many of the large cloud providers, they're usually some of the largest tenants in data centers globally. And this is where they store, compute, and they connect, if you will, um, all their activities. And a data center really is a little bit about land because you do want to have, for latency purposes, be next to one another. But you also have a huge demand for power and water, which is becoming more and more scarce. So that is where like, the demand for data centers is kind of increasing, where at the same time the supply is becoming more constrained because it's all about access, cost the power and water. So we're starting to see rental rates go up, which is really done on a megawatt basis, go up significantly in many markets. Is that largely a North American story or, or is that a US? No, no, no. This is a, this is a global story. Without a doubt, it is a, it is a global story. Because in some markets in Europe, for example, access to power is actually more difficult than many North American cities. So there's, it's actually supply constrained or even the city-state of Singapore, they restricted the um, kind of construction of data centers for a period um, because they needed to sort out what was the power generation, where was that coming from. 
we'll, we'll, we'll go back and forth between commercial lines, but just because we're going global, I'm quite interested in what areas of the world you have some sort of real call on versus others that might be much more company specific. Yeah, I mean, more recently, we were very severely underweight retail, retail real estate. We've kind of moved where we're not as underweight as we were in the past. If anything, it's a very simple thing is the supply of new bricks and mortar real estate around the world has been constrained. And the demand side, because many retail tenants have finally, I would say, perfected their omni-channel. And they realize that the store is not only in the center of it for distribution purposes, but also for marketing purposes. So although many of them have an e-commerce, many retailers have an e-commerce strategy, which they spent billions of dollars on in the last decade, and they actually didn't get much return, the pandemic taught them that, well, one, if we can get the customer to come pick up the good at the store, we need a physical location. And that's where we actually can do this on a profitable type basis. Right. So we're increasingly like retail real estate, even though as e-commerce, we'll slowly chip away at that. But listed real estate um, companies that are involved in retail around the world generally own much better located and higher quality retail centers. And we're seeing that on the demand side. That is, for the first time in many years, they actually have pricing power. Rents are going up for retail bricks and mortar. That's fascinating. Tell, tell us a little bit more about the retail side of things. If we, if we go into the malls, I mean, it's, it's always a fun thing to talk about. I don't know if it's useful in the way that you're investing, but there's lots of sort of anecdotal stories of, well, this bad mall became a mini city with tons of condos and, you know, that type of retail applying to that. And can we apply that to every mall that doesn't seem to go well? Well, that has occurred, for example, here in the United States. 20 years ago, there was estimated to be about 1,400 malls, and that's down to about seven, 800. And over time, as those lower quality malls have died, and this happens to all forms of real estate, and you're seeing a lot of discussion now whether office is going to be converted to residential, and it's called HBU or higher and better use. So at a price, is the, a, a piece of real estate better to be converted? Now that takes a long time. It needs to have what we call the basis, that is the value of the current real estate is down to a point where some, the current owner or some other person can come in and buy it, get it repermitted, demolish it, reconstruct it as a new form of real estate, which is all very time consuming and still make an added adequate economic return. So you will see many stories about that, but in reality, it takes a long time and it's going to, you need to be patient. That is where the return hurdles can be met by someone to convert it. So that sounds like an appropriate time to ask you a little bit about the, the rate environment. If Fed company wanted to do all that and, and then they're borrowing at the rates ultimately that, that we've got here. Tell us a little bit about how you, you look at that. This is, this is sort of what it means in a capital intensive industry. That's exactly, this is the definition of it, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, property by definition is capital intensive. It's not labor intensive, it's not commodity intensive. Obviously starting about 18 months ago, we had a huge shift in the cost of capital. First and foremost, with interest rates, both short-term and long-term interest rates around the world. Now, in reality, long-term interest rates are the ones that matter most because most real estate is very, long duration um, tenants and contracts and, and the buildings themselves. Now that has been a, a step uh, adjustment that is in the value of the real estate and also in the average 
global REIT capital structure, as their lower cost debt rolls off, they have to pay higher cost debt. So this has been one reason over the past 18 months that generally speaking that REITs have somewhat struggled, especially versus broader equity markets, is this cast of capital adjustment that has occurred. Yeah, yeah, okay. And I mean, any further thoughts on just sort of the macro environment or you just, we're, we're in it, we seem to be managing to a certain extent. I mean, at what point, I guess, does it get painful? That's, that's always the question. Yeah, I would argue that it's been semi-painful, and especially more recently, we've seen, in, once again, an uptick in long-term interest rates. Although the REIT markets around the world have gone down a bit, they haven't um, underperformed that much versus global equity. So some of the adjustment factor, one could argue, has already been priced in. As you mentioned earlier, absent the office sector, fundamentals are generally pretty good. And going forward, there will be a more limited amount of new competitive supply due to higher construction costs, due to higher interest rates, and you need higher rents in all sectors to justify new construction. So that's a positive offset by that cost of capital adjustment that has occurred. Okay, so that, that helps explain, I think, the answer to the question I was going to ask. You know, For those looking at this type of capital environment and so on, why would you go into real estate versus, you know, a lot of people have seen a lot of flows into into the bond market. There's actually some yield there these days. It's a new it's a new story on that front. I mean, how, how do you make the argument? I understand one is equities and one is bonds, but for those looking for that type of solid return, what do you say? Yeah, generally speaking, I view real estate as somewhat in between equity and bonds. Yeah. You have a component of both. You have underlying building or a collection of buildings, which comprises all of these listed real estate companies, which generate cash flows. And right now they're growing cash flows. Um, to a certain extent, they're in many markets, they're inflation protected or they're keeping up with inflation. Not when we have high single digit inflation, but if that starts to moderate, we will continue to see pretty good cash flow or net operating income growth as it's alluded to. So on the other side, it also has equity type components. That is, it's valuing the growth that, that these companies can achieve. So in some, some sense, it has the good and the bad of both the fixed income and the equity world. There's been, a few, I'm sure uh, Toronto is not the only municipality that, that's had discussions about this, about where, you know, where the city is and the municipal budget and all these kinds of things. And so there's, they're throwing around ideas of different taxes and how do we get municipalities back on track municipalities looking at the real estate story what what is there for sort of converting certain types of use into other types of use it's a big it's a big part of the story there's the capital story but then there's also sort of the permitting story that every city and country has to go through what what do you see on that landscape it, it is a permitting story and i think you're alluding to like what you see quite a bit in the headlines is office converting to residential and I would actually start before the, the permitting side of it or the city's desire for that is the physical bones of XYZ building. Does it, is it allowable? That is, because many large tower office buildings, they don't, you know, they have big floor plates, hard to convert to residential because most people want windows. Second, you know, you have elevators and electrical and plumbing that has to do it. So it all, it sounds great on paper, but in reality, there's actually the physical bones of the building will limit some of the conversion that will take place. And then secondly, you're going to have cities, yes, they don't want empty office towers, 
And yes, in some respects, there's a, a lack of residential, but I'd say it's also a lack of residential at a price too. So they're, they're willing to, to go along with its cities, but then, I, as I said earlier, the developer has to make a return at it before it's actually gonna be financially viable for that. And you are starting to see some cities offer some tax, where I live here in Boston, more recently in the last month, they've offered some tax incentives to try to encourage developers to perhaps convert some old office buildings to residential. Interesting. And would you call it a, a major theme that you're watching or is it is it sort of a, a sideshow a little bit? I think it's a little bit of a sideshow and it's very, has a lot of analogies to the mall thing that we discussed earlier, that it's going to take many decades for this to occur. So will there be stories in, in the financial press? Yes. But in reality, those are more stories that are people want to read about and it's going to be this whole entire wholesale chain. Take us back to the fundamentals. I mean, if you just say fundamentals in real estate, I just think high rates. How does that work? <laughs> so take us inside the fundamentals and why it looks good in some parts. Well, yeah, fundamentals is it's your classics. And as long as we continue to have positive GDP growth, albeit slowing at the margin, that is good for the demand for real estate, all forms of real estate. On the other side of it is the supply, which is starting to be restricted in many markets because of what I alluded to earlier. So hence, you have the ability to push up rents or occupancies will be maintained. So we're pretty, I wouldn't say bullish, but we're, we're pretty satisfied with the fundamental outlook. It's the capital side of business. And if there is any, I would say, resurrection in the capital side of business, which unfortunately, because I hate to be macro and I hate to be held hostage by interest rates, but if there is any improvement there, this is viewed as a, a potentially higher levered way to play an improvement on the capital side of the business. Okay. Oh, very interesting. So going back to actually the way that we that we started a little bit, because, you know, again, this is what investors are reading and seeing. So how, Steve, is what's happening in China affect North American and other global regions? Just Just take us back to sort of what the effect would be. I would say it's rather limited unless it's going to uh, definitely impact the entire global economy. So the fund has no direct exposure to China. It does have a very limited exposure to Hong Kong uh, within it, but the companies that it does own have very small exposure to mainland China and primarily the mall sector, not the residential development sector. And we've um, kind of been bearish long-term on China residential. One, it was a very um, bad model, if you will, where people had to, uh, potential customers had to put down money first then they built it, and then a couple of years later, they'd receive their units. So hence why now you have all these unfinished units all with customers clamoring that they've already put money down for. And that is creating a situation which I arguably I think the Chinese government is very well aware of and watching. If you, if you look around many parts of the world where, where interest rates are rising, sorry to take you back here, but here, here's a question on it. It doesn't necessarily have to be the U.S. or Canada. It's happening across UK and, and other parts. So what percentage of rent versus cap drives returns? You know, th this is where people are, are buying something to yeah. rent and pay off the mortgage all at the same time. T take us inside that. Well, one, there is this tug of war between the rental side and the interest rate or the capital side of the business. And where you see that then is in the balance sheet. And generally speaking, in the listed space of the developed world, which is my primary universe, the balance sheets are pretty good. 
they have lower leverage, definitely lower leverage than they had prior to the global financial crisis. They have very little limited amount of debt coming due in the near term. They have a limited amount of floating rate debt. So it's really just does interest rates eventually go down where they're refinancing back to a lower rate than they are today. There are those some problem child children, if you will. Sweden, for example, generally speaking in illicit space, they have too much debt, too much debt coming due, too much floating rate debt. Also German residential is another one. And a couple mall companies based here in the US or in Europe, and they're in the process of trying to fix their balance sheets. But overall, the balance sheet side of the capital side of that is not, a, it is a worry per se as interest rates continue to go up, but it's not as the first and foremost worry, especially versus all the other owners of real estate around the world. A number of years ago, this is pre-COVID and real estate was in a different story and you know people were, were working differently and there, there were lots of different things at play in terms of daily life in a city. But I, I think I asked you a version of what, would a great city have to be doing for you to find it a really good investment? Is there sort of one thing that a municipality or a city as, as, a, as a regional play needs to have to, to have the property story really of interest to you? What, has that changed now? You said transit, good public transit is actually what you said. Yeah. That was a different story five years ago, six years ago. Yeah, no, that, that has slightly diminished because one, People aren't going into the office as much, which was a primary reason for very good transit. Not to say that people for social activities don't use public transport, but generally speaking, it's the commute that, that there. I would say if anything that is somewhat risen up, and this is, is true, is just the educational systems of both primary, secondary, and universities, which generate the future workers of today where people want to live. And generally speaking, they want to this happens in a city, they want to live in a city. So there is this urban bias, if you will, and you definitely see that pronounced in the publicly listed space. Now, just to remind you, approximately 10% in the developed world of buildings in a variety of different sectors are owned by publicly listed companies. And generally speaking, they're in much more urban areas than rural or even you know, hinterland type cities, if you will. That's really interesting. So yeah, it's not sort of taking a look at the farmlands. It's, it's this is more the listed space would be would be in various municipalities. So that so that's interesting. So potentially the education sector and where it goes from here type thing is is one factor. Exactly, because one could argue that especially the higher education system are creating the jobs that have the higher paying jobs that have more of the propensity to rent in at pay higher rents, but also retail spend and stay at hotels and things like that. So take it the listed companies that are around the world, the differences between some European equities and North American equities and whether it's the time for this or that or not. Does does mm -hmm. real estate, do the listed real estate companies also, I mean, do, do you see some interesting moments? or other regions around the world? You mentioned Hong Kong, but I'm, I'm curious about Europe and, and maybe some other places. What, how do their landscapes look? There's small little differences by countries. The only, I would say, purposeful country bets the fund currently has on is underweight Hong Kong, which has been for a long time. Second, underweight Sweden due to their balance sheet issues uh, within that. Other than that, and this may surprise people, but I do own some office in, for example, in continental Europe. 
And one of the reasons for it is, and this is very different from the North American office companies and even a little bit London, is that they have indexation. They have true inflation indexation. So for example, this year, office rents are going up high single digit in many European countries. So you're able, even in a weaker office environment, to capture that. A typical office lease, especially ones that are being signed now in North America, they don't have inflation protection and they're very getting very little what's called bumps or escalators in their leases. They're generally very flat. So they, I would argue, and you look over time, they're not great inflation hedges. And that gets my previous comments that office, for example, in North America was not a good business prior to the pandemic, and it's arguably a worse business today. Are, are certain building standards in some cities you'll see, you know, you get you get lots of tax incentives to be more of a, of a green developer or so on. Is that is that meaningful at this stage or is that down the road? No, that's occurring definitely in, in European, and it is a little bit driven by governments, but I would actually say it's the tenants that are driving it, okay. because if, especially if you're um, a, a publicly listed tenant for your ESG credentials, you potentially want your, your employees to be in green buildings for that uh, purpose. And secondly, the employees want to be there. So even um, with trying to entice employees to the office or keep employees, especially in very competitive type fields, you often see them uh, wanting, you know, what we call prime or uh, buildings that are up to the latest ESG standards. I would say that's most pronounced in European cities, and it's starting to come here to North America and to Australia and Japan. You mentioned earlier that you view real estate as somewhere between equities and bonds. We, we've seen some, some pretty fast moves, actually, in the bond market in the last week or so. And, and the equity markets are having a wobble. There's no question. The case for real estate, just as we close out here. The case for real estate. One, as I alluded to earlier, the fundamentals absent the office sector are pretty good. Second, if we were to have a positive change in the capital environment, that is the cost of capital, you will see this sector potentially, potentially be highly levered to that. And we've already had over the last couple of years quite a pain, quite a bit of pain in where the listed real estate has returned. This year it's done okay, even in kind of this rising interest rate environment. Uh, that's, I would say, is reflected on last year's very poor performance. Right. Okay. Steve Buller, it's great to have a chance to speak with you. Thank you. Have a great weekend and we look forward to seeing you in the next little while. All the best. Great. Thanks, Pamela. Thanks for joining us. Have a good weekend. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. On fidelity.ca, you can also find more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.